This passage of scripture that we're going to go through today, this is one of those that if you had not been doing eight months through 2 Samuel like we've been doing, you'd have gone your entire church career and not gotten this incredibly DC story, all right? This is a very, very DC lesson, and we're going to talk about today the pursuit of fame, all right? So over the years in ministry, just so you know, uh, we've had a lot of people schedule meetings with the pastor to confess sin. There has not been one time that someone confessed and they were like, I need to schedule a meeting with you. I've been pursuing fame and I need to confess it. Not one time in ministry have I had anybody ever do that. And yet, what do we do in this city? We share in common whether you were born here or whether you fought to get here. It takes ambition to stay in this city. And so it's one of the things that everybody shares in common. Drifting into the pursuit of fame. The pursuit of fame is always sinful. And I want to prove that to you today. And for some of you, maybe just maybe this is a shake-up, wake-up call for you uh, so that you can break free from the chains of this sin. By the way, the old-timers didn't call it fame. The old-timers called it vanity. It's the old-school sin of vanity. And we're going to walk through it today through through that picture of the pursuit of fame. If you got your Bibles, open to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23 and then 2 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, And Proverbs 23, 4 that we're going to read first is a great verse to memorize. If you are in your 20s or your 30s, uh, Proverbs 23, 4 could end up saving your life later on. All right, it's a great verse to memorize. Our study today starts with this question. Have you ever had to show restraint instead of running after something? Have you ever had to show restraint instead of running after something? Again, around this room, takes a lot to get to this city, takes a lot to stay in this city. Each one of you have that gift of ambition, of drive, of determination. You're hard workers in this room. I don't know how you could be lazy and stay in this city. Every one of you is hardworking. In fact, just about every one of you is creative in one aspect or another. And here's the deal. I'm telling you, for you, you are make it happen people. But sometimes the godliest thing is when you don't make it happen, when a sacrifice of faith is to step back and to show restraint. Picture a racehorse. You ever watched a race, a horse race before and you watch those horses and they're going and you kind of hear the commentators go, such and such was the favorite. Why is the jockey riding them so far back at the pack? Why is this happening? And you watch it. All of a sudden, they're just waiting for that opening and you watch it. All of a sudden, the horses drift apart and hmm, that racehorse starts to run and they cross the finish line first. The goal is not record time. The goal is to be the first horse that crosses the finish line. And here's the picture. When it comes to our relationship with God, he has crafted you. He has shaped you for such a time as this to do things that he laid out, plans he laid out before he ever formed you in your mother's womb. He knows the timing. He's given you great purpose. And there are going to be moments when you feel him pull on the reins. It's not him limiting you. It's him waiting for that moment, showing restraint so that then in faith you can run and cross the finish line. Um, I'll give you an example of that in my life. Uh, Some of you know our story of how we planted Waterfront Church, but uh, um, I was the uh, associate pastor at a church called Victory Life in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, And in the four years that we served there, we had an agreement with our pastor then uh, that they were going to do uh, $10,000 a year for five years as a gift to help us get started. $50,000 over five years is a fantastic gift. It was going to take us about $250,000, 225 a year uh, in, the, in the beginning for us to get started. 
And so I'll never forget, met with my pastor. We talked that through. And then I let him know that I was about to move and get started in D.C. And four months before we moved, the move date, all of a sudden he comes up and he says, yeah, I'm taking another job. He said, I need you to go ahead. He was like, I'm sure the church will take care of the promise that we made you. And so he did what he had to do. But I was sitting there going, oh, my goodness. I don't know if we're going to be able to receive this. And we were very much counting on the money. Well, they appointed me to be the intentional interim at the church. Uh, and then I had the privilege, after praying it through with the leadership team, we offered the full-time job to my dad uh, to come in and to serve as the pastor of our sending church. He had been an evangelist for 22 years. Uh, and then uh, he came in and settled in as the pastor. Well, what was so cool about that for me is there was six weeks of overlap where I was my dad's boss. How cool is that, right? Again, you don't want to be your dad's boss long term, but six weeks of telling him what to do. When we get to heaven together, I will still razz him about that into eternity, all right, that I had those weeks of telling him what to do. All that's to say, we're in that little stretch, and all of a sudden our move date comes up. And my dad looks at me, takes the job, and I go, well, about to get ready, move to D.C., time for us to peace out of here and uh, get going on what God's calling is. Don't forget about the, the $10,000 a year for five years. And my dad looked at me, and he goes, son, I need a favor. He said, you're the longest tenured staff member at the church right now. He said, I need you to stay six more months. I got angry because... My dad, I felt like, had been trying to scuttle the plans because he wanted us to stay and not take the grandkids far away. And so because of that, I thought he was just trying to scuttle the plans. And I said, man, you're just trying to stop this. You need to wrap your head around the fact that we're going to D.C. whether you like it or not. I mean, you know how son or daughter talks to their father or mother, right? I'll never forget, he said, son, just pray about it. He said, it'd be good for the church. And he said, I think it'd be good for you too. Well, here's the deal. I go, Autumn was on speakerphone the whole time we were having that discussion. And my wife looks over at me and she goes, are you going to pray about it? I said, oh, he's just trying to stop us. She goes, I think you should pray about it. Well, after praying about it, all of a sudden I could feel in my spirit that I was supposed to do this, that we were supposed to delay those six months, that it wasn't going to be us denying our calling, but it truly was what we were supposed to do. Some of you know our story. My dad uh, on the very first, uh, the first, the day before that we moved to D.C., uh, the six months later, would complain of stomach pains that would end up being neuroendocrine stage three pancreatic cancer. The six months that we had, it always been a dream of mine to work with my father. Those six months would have been the best six months that he had left. Not only that, but my dad met with the board there in Lubbock, and my dad said to the board, you guys have committed $10,000 a year for five years to help Waterfront Church. He said, it's going to cost them a whole lot more money to plant than that. He said, that's a good amount of money. He said, it's a drop in the bucket for what they'll actually need, especially to get started. They said, well, John, what are you proposing? My dad said, $25,000 a year indefinitely. He said, 10% of what they need for the year indefinitely. And you know what's crazy? Our church turned eight years old last week. Victory had given six months previously for eight and a half years. They have given $25,000 a year toward the mission that we do here, uh, basically covering the cost of the Miracle Theater during our construction during this time. They have been spectacular partners to us, and I'm telling you, we are grateful. For any of you watching from Victory, we are grateful every single month that we see those checks that come through and acknowledge your partnership. I say it to you to say this. The Lord pulled the reins. I'm a racehorse. 
And the Lord pulled the reins and said, ease up, restrain, ease up, don't run ahead. And it caused me such pain, such difficulty going, Lord, why are you withholding this blessing from me? And instead the Lord goes, all right, now run. And you run unhindered across the finish line. I want to encourage you. When it comes to the pursuit of money or fame, money and fame are neutral items that when given to us by God can be very, very positive for his name and also for our good. But when we run after them as our main goal, it can end up causing us a whole lot of problems. Look with me, if you will, Proverbs 23, and now let's look at verse four. Proverbs 23, four. It says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Let me say that one more time. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. To pursue being a good steward, to pursue God's provision is a very good and godly thing. To pursue greed all of a sudden is a hair to the wrong side that can cause you all kinds of trouble. On the same front, it's not a bad thing to pursue being known, but it's a very bad thing to pursue being famous. If you want to write this down, you can. Be aware of the important difference between the basic human desire to be known and the deeply sinful desire to be famous. One more time. Be aware of the important difference between the basic human desire to be known and the deeply sinful desire to be famous. Let me explain to you the basic human desire to be known. Desire to be known is like if you showed up at a big party and you only knew one person and it was a room filled with a thousand people. The idea of wanting to be known is you have one person there who knows you, who knows your story, who you're connected with, and you walk in frantically looking around, but when you make eye contact with that one person that you know, there is a peace that comes over you. There's a joy that hits your body because you aren't just nobody in the room. You are known. Now, here's the difference. Fame is not wanting to be known. Fame is wanting the flashbulbs, TikTok style, as you walk in the room. You ever had one of those moments before? When you walk in, and I'm telling you, it just feels like spotlights on you. Everybody knows you, but it's about you and your fame. It pumps that ego, and I'm telling you, it becomes highly addictive. To pursue being known is ingrained in who we are. It's the reason that Jesus tells the parables of being lost and this idea of going after the lost sheep, going after the lost coin, the lost son coming home to live at home. And then all of a sudden you have this example of just going, Ooh, I just want to be famous. Desire for fame is always sinful. When God bestows it upon us, it can be used for good, but to pursue it to pursue it is a very wicked pursuit. And I want to prove that to you today. Flip with me, if you will. 2 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 19, and we're going to address this big question today. What happens when we run after fame instead of letting God bring it to us? What happens when we run after fame instead of letting God bring it to us? I've never had anybody come in and confess the sin of vanity or confess the sin of fame. If this is you today, the Lord is speaking to you because this is rarely a passage that would be preached. You ready for this? We're gonna read the story of Ahimaaz today. Look with me if you will, 2 Samuel 18, and we're gonna start in verse 19. 
Now remember, Absalom has just died. Joab uh, and his men have killed Absalom when uh, the king had commanded them not to. And so there's all these crazy political implications that are happening at the same time. Ahimaaz doesn't know that. Ahimaaz just knows that Joab blew the trumpet and they're not supposed to pursue the Israelites anymore, that the war is over. But that must mean that Absalom has been killed. Look at what happens in verse 19. And so Ahimaaz, now Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, says, let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Now stop right there. Ahmaz is also in one other passage. Do you remember from our study which one it is? He's the one with Jonathan, the other son of one of the priests, that hides in the well with the message that David and his men, his family and his household should cross over the Jordan because uh, Absalom and his men are about to chase after him. The plan, remember, of Ahithropel. Here's why that's important. Ahimaaz is going, hey, look, I've already signed the book deal for my political story. He said, the book ends for this whole story is I was the messenger that protected David's family and now I wanna be the messenger that shares the information and book ends the story. I've already signed the book deal. I've already got the publisher. Can you let me do this? And he pursues it. But remember, there's all these other political implications going along with this. He's sitting there going, I wanna be the guy with my name chiseled on the monument next to the famous person. I wanna be the person with my name signed next to the one with the big bill that we did. I wanna be the one in the background as the president signing the big, uh, the big bill into law. That's the picture of what he wants here. He's done nothing. He just wants to be the messenger and that's what had made him famous previously. Look at what happens in verse 30. This is Joab. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. Underline because the king's son is dead. It says, then Joab said to an unnamed Cushite, underline a Cushite, go tell the king what you've seen and the Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Now stop right there for just a minute. Ahimaaz says, let me be the one to carry the message. Let me be the staffer that gets to be standing next to the president when the bill is signed. And Joab looks and he goes, you don't want none of this, son. He said, this is a fight between me and David. His son shouldn't be dead at this point. Remember, Absalom symbolized the cruelty in the civil war between the two sides. Him being put to death when his head had gotten caught in a tree. I mean, it, it, again, it harkened back to the story of Abraham and the ram and the thicket that God provided so the sacrifice of Isaac didn't have to take place. In this case, God had provided so Absalom didn't have to die in brutal fashion. Joab looks at Ahimaaz and he goes, you don't want none of this, man. There's a deeper political battle taking place here and the king may kill you in his presence if you tell him what's taking place with his son. That does not stop him from wanting his name on the bill. It doesn't stop him from wanting his name chiseled into the monument. And so what does Joab do? He looks at an unnamed foreigner. Can I tell you why he picks an unnamed foreigner? Because he had no political agenda. He wasn't a part of the civil war. He looks at somebody who can share the bad news with David and not have the potential to be killed or marked in his presence. It's appropriate for this kid. As wicked as Joab is during this part of the story, he's trying not to hurt anybody else in the process. But Ahimaaz, he wants his name on the project. If you're taking notes, what happens when we run after fame instead of letting God bring it to us? Number one, our selfishness becomes obvious. 
Our selfishness becomes obvious. It benefits no one but potentially Ahimaaz for him to be the one that shares that information. Give me the bookends for my memoir. I've already signed the book deal. Give me the bookends for my memoir. I need to be the one that carries this message. Now, here's the thing. When you are competing for a job, that's not a bad thing as long as you do it in a godly fashion. When you are competing for someone else's business, that's not a bad thing. It's a bad thing when your ultimate pursuit is I'm going to get that job, I'm going to get that account, I'm going to date that person, and I don't care what it stinking takes, godly or ungodly, to get there. When it becomes your main pursuit, wickedness abounds. Silly example, but I hope it sticks with you. Uh, So our family has got some different traditions. My mom was always the one, and mom, I know you're watching today. I love you, all right? It was my birthday yesterday. Thank you for giving birth to me. I appreciate it, okay? My mom always tried to start these traditions. The one that stuck is something that we call Christmas Eve gift, okay? My mom, when I was very, very young, again, like four years old, My mom said, here's the deal. I bought an extra present and it was never anything big or really even anything that you wanted. She said, I bought a present and the first person to tell me Christmas Eve gift on Christmas Eve receives this present and you can open it immediately. And so again, as a kid, it's like I could open a present today and tomorrow. I mean, it just was a big, exciting thing. And so I would win it the first few years, but my family is sickly competitive sickly competitive. I'm the oldest. Then I got a younger brother named Sam, three and a half years younger than me. Gotta love Sam's, all right? Sam's three and a half years younger than me. And then Haley is five years, five, six years younger than me. Haley's our little sister. So here's the deal. Sam's pretty good. My sister Haley is devious when it comes to Christmas Eve gifts. And one year in particular, my brother's senior year in high school, she became a legend in our house. And here's how. I'm off at Oklahoma State, And what I would do is I would wait until midnight and I would call in at midnight again, that December 23rd, 24th in between time. And I'd call at midnight and I would try to win. My brother again would set it up so that he could make the, he could be there in person and he could be the one. As soon as he'd hear the phone ring, he would then run up and say Christmas Eve gift. So Haley watching all this unfold, this is back when you had the landlines and the cell phones. Haley unplugged all the landlines from the wall. Not only that, she went around and she turned off all the cell phones, every single one of them, except the one that was in her own pocket. Turned off all the cell phones. And then to make it even more devious, she went to every clock in the house and turned them back 15 minutes. Every clock in the house. And so all of a sudden, I'm calling at midnight. I'm like, who are mom and dad talking to at midnight? There was a busy signal. Their cell phones are turned off. I'm thinking like somebody's in trouble. And then all of a sudden, there's Haley just sitting there with her arms crossed. She even DVR'd a TV show and ran it back 15 extra minutes. So as they're sitting in there watching TV, Sam's there watching the clock. And then all of a sudden, 12 o'clock hits. Haley leans over and she goes, Christmas Eve gift. And then all of a sudden, my brother goes, no, uh-uh, 15 more minutes, 15 more minutes. She goes, oh, really? And then revealed her evil plan. <laughs> now listen, was I mad that my sister did that? Not in the least. Not in the least. It was, again, it was Ron Burgundy. I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. You ate an entire wheel of cheese? Anyway, let's do right. Okay, a little anchor man there for you. I wasn't mad. She abided by the rules. She did it the right way. She outplayed us that year, all right? I have won since then. 
She outplayed us that year. What if she had sat down with my mom beforehand and said, you know, I really need this. Can you not answer the phone when Zach calls today? Can you not um, listen to Sam when he calls out to you from across the other way? Can you just take my word instead of theirs? That would have frustrated me, even on something as small as Christmas Eve gift. And when it comes to fame, when it comes to the pursuit of riches, when it's drifted into greed, we look at God and we go, you know what? I realize all good things come from you, but I got to get mine and make it happen for myself. There's a time when hard work is a very faith-filled thing. And there's other times the Lord is looking at you and going, have the wisdom to show restraint for crying out loud. Don't be the one that asks and pushes. Best example of that in scripture, by the way, one of the best examples comes from when James and John are walking along the road with Jesus. And you remember they send their mom over and their mom goes, when Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, can you have one of my sons sit on your right and one of them sit on your left? And Jesus looks and goes, woman, what are you talking about? He says, what are you thinking? He goes, what a ridiculous thing for you to ask. You don't even know what you're asking. It says, after that, the rest of the disciples come up and they were indignant. That's what scripture says. They were indignant and they went, how dare you try to leapfrog over us? How dare you try to insert yourself into the fame story of Jesus? How dare you try to leap ahead on this? And Jesus puts them in their place to say, this was not your place to ask. If you're taking notes, write this down. You ready? Selfish requests are easy to spot for everyone looking on or hearing the story. Let me say that again. Selfish requests are easy to spot for everyone looking on or hearing the story. Let's just be honest. There are some of you in your office and you know a big day's coming up and you know somebody's gonna ask to sit in that seat of honor. You know, someone's gonna ask to be a part of that photo op that takes place. I want to encourage you. Have the wisdom to show some restraint, amen? What a DC passage, isn't it? We just wanna be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I'm going to Hamilton tonight, all right? It's gonna be great, all right? Okay, I'm telling you, you wanna be in that room where it happens. We bought the tickets, by the way, before the pandemic. They delayed it all this time, and we're finally gonna to get to go see it. This is our pandemic Hamilton visit tonight, all right? I'm telling you, you just wanna be in the room where it happens. If the Lord ordains it, it can be very good. If you seek after it on your own, it just doesn't work. Selfish requests are easy to spot, and then that's how you end up the most hated person in the office because they know that you tried to make it happen for yourself. It begs the question, are you forcefully adding yourself into the narrative? Are you forcefully adding yourself into the narrative? There is no reason for Ahimaaz to take this message. He just wants to do it so he can be famous, so he can have his flashbulb moment. Look at what happens in 2 Samuel 18, verse 22 now. Here's what it says next, 18, 22. It says, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, look at this, come what may, please let me run. Underline, come what may, please let me run. I've always envisioned that as a prayer of many a person trying to get to D.C., right? Come what may, I want to run. Look at what Joab says. This is Joab says, all right, then run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain, look at this, and he outran the Cushite. Now, underline, he outran the Cushite. Pastor Wayne, uh, in our Bible study this week, pointed out the Cushites specifically were from the area that's now considered Ethiopia. And who wins the marathon run every single year in the Olympics? It's the nation of Ethiopia over and over again. This is a professional message person, a professional runner, and this guy wants fame so stinking badly that he is outrunning the professional messenger and the professional runner. That's how badly he wants to be famous. 
famous. He wants not just to be known, but he wants his flashbulb moment. If you're taking notes, write this down. What happens when we run after fame instead of letting God bring it to us? Number one, our selfishness becomes obvious. And number two, we assume great risk for a lesser pursuit. We assume great risk for a lesser pursuit. In this circumstance, Joab, again, who is not in his right head at this point, goes, fine, your funeral. If the king kills you, it's not on me. I tried to tell you that there was something bigger going on here. But he wants that pursuit so badly. If you're taking notes, write this down. There are precious few pursuits in this life worthy of casting caution to the wind. Seeking fame is never one of them. Let me say it again. There are precious few pursuits in this life worthy of casting caution to the wind. Seeking fame is never one of them. I can tell you in my own personal life, when it comes to casting caution to the wind, where I truly look and say, come what may, I'm going all in on this situation. When it comes to my family, I'm willing to cast caution to the wind. When it comes to my relationship with God, when it comes to my deepest level friendships, for those of you serving in the military, again, country, duty, community, those are things worthy of casting caution to the wind. Why in the world would you ever say, come what may, I'm either going to be famous or infamous. I'm jumping headlong into this. And yet, it happens all the time. Don't wear yourself out to get rich and famous. Have the wisdom to show restraint. The way you got there is important. In fact, can I just tell you what we've learned in this city? Whenever you pursue fame on your own, you can be famous for something you did one day, and then the very next day you can be infamous. And it wasn't even necessarily anything you did. It might be one person you stood next to one day that makes you famous. And then all of a sudden that same person that you stood next to makes you infamous. I've also noticed this. And Josiah told me not to walk down here, but I'm going to do it anyway. All right, I'm coming down here. Love you, Josiah. All right, listen. For some of you, just being honest, if you have stood next to someone that could potentially give you infamy, do you know how you get out of that infamy? By telling the story of how the Lord brought you to their side in the first place. If the Lord was a part of that journey, then as a person of faith, they realize you didn't take this because you were chasing after fame. You didn't take this because you were chasing after your moment. You were led here and maybe, just maybe, God sent you as the stability in the midst of the mess. But the story, if the story is you were just chasing fame and you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar in the wrong spot or next to the person who has their hand in the cookie jar, Guess what, man? That story's gonna come out too. It's one of the things you figure out in this city. The way you got together is very important. You ever dated somebody before and you met together with another couple that were dating? What's the first thing you ask? How'd you meet? Every time. How'd you meet? Hadn't you figured out in this city that you've gotta defend how you got to the job that you're in? How you got to the relationships that you have? How you got to the point in the picture where you're standing in the background as the law is being made or as the, uh, the big moment is happening. All of that stuff is so important in the process. How we get there is just as important as the end result. Amen? I'm teaching you power in this city if you're listening. You gotta make sure you come to the point 
that you let the Lord direct your steps, that when he pulls back and says restrain, you have the courage and the faith to restrain. And then when he says run, that's when you run. Luke chapter 14, verse 7. Save your spot in 2 Samuel. Luke 14, verse 7 should be prerequisite reading for anyone moving to this city. Are you ready? Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. You ready? Here's what it says. It says, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when the host comes to you, he will say, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Whenever we pursue fame and go, you know what? The head seat is open, and so I'm sitting in it. When we do that, you have opened yourself up to the risk of somebody else going, hey, that seat was reserved for somebody else more important than you are. We need you to move down. All the middle seats are taken where you could have sat, so now you're going to have to sit at the foot of the table. You're going to be straining to hear everything happening that's going on on the important end, and I'm telling you, you're just lucky to be in the room. When you carry the attitude of, I just feel lucky to be in the room. I don't even have a seat at the table. I can just stand along the wall and be happy that the Lord has given me breath in my lungs and life in my bones that I might serve him. That's when the humility is noticed across the group in leadership and they ask you to move up. Be that person. Don't be the one that's asked to clear a seat for someone more important. Is that a good word? When we pursue fame, it is always a wicked pursuit. Every time. And again, the old timers called it vanity. The idea that we could be somebody because of what we've done and not because who God made us to be. It begs the question, have you considered what chasing fame could cost you? Have you considered what chasing fame could cost you? Ahamaz did not. Are you ready for a funny part? Look at this. Look at 2 Samuel. Flip back over 2 Samuel 18 and let's read verses 24 through 33. Here's what it says. Come what may, I want to run. Job goes, well, then run. All right, then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plane. He outruns the Cushite, the professional runner. Look at verse 24. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone, and the watchman called out to the king and reported it. And David then said, ah, if he's alone, he must have good news. And the man came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another man running and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man is running alone. The king goes, oh, he must be bringing good news too. Stop right there for just a minute. David has become such an optimist that God is gonna provide for his family, that God's gonna provide for the country, that God's gonna knit all of it back together. He's just got this eternal optimism and God did provide. Joab messed it up and now Ahimaaz is trying to take the credit in that moment. Look at what happens. In verse 27, it says, The watchman said, It seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, a friend of yours, David. Oh, he's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. It says, Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, All is well. And he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord the king. And the king said, 
is the young man Absalom safe? Now you got to remember, Absalom is David's son. But the hope is that if Absalom is still alive, David can reconcile his family. He can reconcile the civil war that's taking place in the country. And remember, God had provided. They prayed for it. And God provided where Absalom was caught in a tree and he didn't have to be killed. So look at what this coward does. You ready? Verse 29. Excuse me, verse, uh, verse, yeah, verse 29. The king said, is the young man Absalom okay? Look at what Ahimaaz does. Ahimaaz answered, um, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, uh, your servant, but I don't know what it was. Stop right there. That joker pretends like he don't know. He outran the professional messenger. He wanted that moment of glory. He wanted his name chiseled on the monument so badly. He wanted to be in the background of the presidential signature so badly. He wanted his name on the bill so stinking badly. And how does the passage end? With him going, oh gosh, Joab was right. Come what may was not a good decision. He left himself no outs and he ran ahead when the Lord had cautioned him through the word of Joab, the commanding officer. Look at what happens next because this is exactly what happens here. Verse 30, the king said, uh, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. You ever had to do this at the office? You ran ahead. You put your nose in a place where it wasn't supposed to be. You inserted yourself into a situation. And all of a sudden, what you thought was going to be a moment of glory is the boss looking at you and going, oh, really? Let's get such and such in here and let's verify that. That's what happens in this moment. He ran ahead. He thought it was going to be the bookend for his memoir. And instead, all of a sudden, he's standing there going, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? His entire life, I guarantee you, is flashing before his eyes in this moment. You ready for verse 30? King said, step aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and he stood there. It says, then the Cushite arrived and said, my Lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. And the king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. Now stop right there for just a minute. Notice he doesn't say Absalom's name. And remember, he is a Cushite. He's not from the nation of Israel at this point. So because of his background, because of who he is, because of the way that he formalizes this info. Remember, Joab just said, go tell him what you've seen. This guy is shrewd enough because this is his job that he is the perfect person to deliver the news and not end up with his head on a stick at the same time. It says then, David, look at verse 33. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Remember, Absalom is symbolic of the country as well. He weeps over his son and he weeps that the division is still there. If you're taking notes, what happens when we run after fame instead of letting God bring it to us? Number one, our selfishness becomes obvious. Number two, we assume great risk for a lesser purpose, for a lesser pursuit. And number three, 
we stand at the doorstep of regret. We stand at the doorstep of regret. For those of you in your 20s and 30s, try to limit regret during this phase as much as possible because it follows you around. I can tell you as somebody who's older. Now, thanks be to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who sets us free and makes us new. Hallelujah and amen. Amen? But you want to limit those regrets as much as possible. Because I'm telling you, I go to the blood of Christ regularly for dumb decisions I made when I was young. Christ's blood covers it. But I repeatedly have to ask him for strength to fight against that shame that always tries to rear its ugly head. Christ's shed blood covers it every time, but I have to be reminded because sometimes those regrets really do come knocking at your door. Listen, limit regret. Immediately Ahimaaz regrets this moment and he had multiple people caution him to not do it. I want to encourage you, don't get caught in that mess. If you're taking notes, write this down. Fame without the Lord's commissioning has a tendency over time to drift into infamy. Fame without the Lord's commissioning has a tendency over time to drift into infamy. One of the toughest things, just to talk to you Hill staffers for a second, one of the toughest things about the Hill, it is a small town environment on a worldwide scale. And that's tough because the stuff that we do, the reputations that we get, it can cause you great fame for a time, but if there is no Christ-centered foundation, it drifts into infamy as time goes by because the world's always changing. I want to encourage you. Do your best to trust the Lord and have the wisdom to show restraint. Um, you ever watch Seinfeld? One last little example for you. You ever watch Seinfeld? There was an episode, Kramer was always our favorite character on the show. Crazy hair, always acting crazy. Um, Kramer, there's one episode where Kramer... Um, is test driving a car for Jerry. Do y'all remember that episode? He's test driving the car and he makes the decision that he's gonna try to drive past the E. Remember the, the empty point. And so the uh, car dealer owner is like, hey, just, just pull over, let's put some gas in there. And Kramer's like, let's keep driving. You ever driven past the E? And he's like, I have, but I've never been this far. And he's like, let's just keep going. And so they just start talking to each other up. Well, here's the deal. Kramer, in the show, is the constant instigator, right? Just always getting everybody into trouble, always into a mess. He always seems to get off scot-free, right? But he causes a mess in his wake for everybody else. And you remember this scene? The guy who's the car dealership worker, he's the one that'll have to pay the penalty with the car later. And so you watch it. Kramer's like, let's just keep going, man. Let's just keep going. Let's keep going way past the And you watch the other guy. He's so nervous. He's like, I finally feel like I'm living life. I mean, just all this emotion. And then finally, there's gonna come a point when the car runs out of gas because that's what cars do when they run out of gas. They stop. And so when that moment happens, Kramer's going to say, man, this was fun. See you later. Peace out. And he's going to get in his taxi and ride it back to his apartment. And then the worker's going to have to figure out how to get the car back to the dealership, towed back to the dealership, refilled with gas, and then explain to his manager why he was gone the entire day with the vehicle. I want to encourage you. Regrets in the moment 
When we stay connected to our God in prayer, when we stay connected to our God through the study of Scripture, when we stay connected to our God through church attendance and through being around other godly people, it keeps us from those moments where when regret starts to creep in, we put the wall up and say, that cannot be me. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to have that moment. I don't want there to even be a chance when I could be standing there and waiting, wondering if my life is going to be gone while somebody else comes in to bring a message. It's just ridiculous. Nobody understood that better than Judas. Judas comes in with his plan. I'm going to be the one that put the Son of God in his place. That's the plan of Judas. So in Matthew 26, he seeks out the high priest. He goes to them and says, what do you give me if I give you Jesus? What a comment. He was the keeper of the money bag. He was the head of the finance committee. He was one of the 12. He was one who had been given power to heal the sick and to preach, go back and study the gospels. He had had the Lord work through him at different points. And all of a sudden he's sitting there and going, I gotta be the famous one. I gotta distinguish myself from the 12. I'm gonna put the boss in his place. He goes, what do you give me? And they go, uh, go and wait for a, go and wait for a slave. It's 30 pieces of silver. They said, how about we give you that? He goes, sounds good. And by the way, the man I kiss is the man. He adds that barb at the end. They didn't ask for that. He says, I'm gonna kiss him on the cheek and that'll really hurt him badly. You don't even have to go a chapter You get to Matthew 27, and Judas is already feeling regret, already feeling remorse, like truly like none of us could ever feel. He betrayed the Savior of the world. And do you remember? He goes back into those same chief priests, and he goes, I don't want any more. I don't want the money anymore. I don't want the fame. I don't want to be the one that betrayed the innocent son of God. And he goes, I don't want it. And they go, whoa, 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 that's blood money, son. We can't touch that here in the temple. Take yourself outside. And like a piece of meat, they shove him into the darkness. In his last moment of trying to grasp and control, Judas takes the money, chucks it in to the temple. It was his last act of defiance. He threw blood money in the temple. And then he goes out and goes, well, this is gonna follow me around for the rest of my life. And instead of being the one who repented and turned to Jesus like every one of us have to do, he still held on to fame and control and he took his own life and hung himself. Fame, vanity, is a wicked, wicked taskmaster. Don't let that be you. For God to give you such an amazing package of potential, do what's right Have the wisdom to restrain. Have the faith to restrain when he says hold. And then when he says run, you run with all your might. It begs our final question. Have you considered where chasing fame could lead you? Have you considered where chasing fame could lead you? I told you there's not a person in my ministry history that's ever come up and said, pray for me, pastor. I'm struggling with fame. And yet, maybe just maybe you're in here today and maybe that's been your pursuit, old school vanity, and it's time you laid it down and allowed Christ's blood to cover that sin. Thanks for listening today. I love you a whole heap. What a special place for us to be. In fact, it's kind of interesting that the vanity sermon would have been at a movie theater. You know what I mean? Just interesting. Maybe the Lord wanted that to happen. Don't tune out. 
most important part of the service these next few moments. Let's bow our heads for prayer.